Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf, and I am somewhere in the vicinity of the New York City metropolitan area. And with us from Washington, D.C., uh, we again have Lauren DeYoung Schulman of uh, CNAS and the Bombshell Podcast. And now joining us is Laura Rosenberger, who is the director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. And in Colorado is Corey Shockey, <laughs> who is, I hope, doing everything she can to avoid ticks because it's <laughs> tick season. <laughs> and really ruin your whole vacation or conference or whatever it is you're doing out there. And somewhere is Ed Luce. I'm not sure if he's actually with us. I am indeed with, with you. Oh, well, that's great. And he's in Washington overseeing the renovation of the Luce Estates just outside of <laughs> Before we start the program, though, can we all celebrate Ed Luce's magnificent uh, FT lunch talk with Henry Kissinger, in particular, his beautiful parallel of Henry Kissinger and Alan Greenspan, both being considered geniuses because they are incomprehensible. That's, that's very kind of you, Corey. You have impeccable taste in journalism. No, no. I, I, Ed, I noticed it myself. I read everything that you write, of course, and, and I save it. I actually write notes on it. I have a kind of Ed Luce Talmud that I keep at home, <laughs> annotated versions of your work. <laughs> I wish that were true. I don't know. It's true. It's a new but, rabbinical school. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's a very small sort of offshoot. But I thought that line about Henry, who, you know, I, I was managing director of Kissinger Associates for a couple of years, and my office was right next to Henry's. Um, and, and this was as true then as it is now. And it was just the most beautiful form of erudite FT shade. Um, uh, and, uh, I'm sure many of the people who are close to Henry had no idea what you meant. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, about a third of, um, about a third of commenters on the, on the piece on, online and also, um, social media and emails, I've been people saying, which has taken me a little bit by surprise, and I now realize it shouldn't have, um, that how could you possibly sit down with a war criminal? I mean, it's it's sort of reincarnations of Christopher Hitchens um, take up a, a larger share of the FT's readership than I, I, I had imagined. Um, uh, and my response to, response to those who've emailed more reasonably on this subject is, um, look, I, I don't think um, Indochina policy was a great thing, but um, uh, under Kissinger or LBJ, for that matter. But two things. One, to single out Kissinger alone 
um, is 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 um, fairly um, contentious. But two, this ended in 1975. Uh, he's been asked this question pretty much by every interviewer for 40 years. In what way do you think it's going to shed light? You know, to ask him that again. And so I didn't ask him about Indochina and got got a lot of flack for not having done so. Um, well, that's that's interesting. I have to say, when I was in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't help but think of the comment of Anthony Bourdain when visiting Cambodia, which was that he met all the really lovely people of the region and 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 said that his only wish was that he could have strangled Henry Kissinger to death with his bare hands, um, and <laughs> that. You know, and I say yeah. this with a lot of fondness towards Henry, but uh, yeah, that, it's an issue. It's he's not going to escape that, no matter uh, how long he he lives. And I no, no, I, nor should he. I, my, I mean, my my point is though he needs to speak out about Trump. And unfortunately, I mean, I made Herculean efforts to try to get him to do so, but he only very elliptically, Greenspan esquely, um, was prepared to be very mildly disapproving of the way the Helsinki summit was run, for example. Well, I have to tell you, and I, I, I actually tweeted this at you, but, I, but I, I think it's worth mentioning for the episode, and then we'll get on to our substance, that, that um, I was speaking to somebody right at the time you wrote the article who could not be closer to Kissinger, really very close to him. And he said that one of the things that Kissinger values the most right now is that he views himself as one of the only people in the world who has a very good, strong relationship with Trump, with Putin, and with Xi Jinping. And yeah. if, and oh, if, for yeah. Christ's sake. Yeah. And you know, Henry, that explains everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Uh, so anyway, let's, let's roll back the tape a little bit here. Can uh, I just, before we close this out, have a, a moment of appreciation for Tom Lehrer when asked why he stopped um, in in 1973, why he stopped writing um, uh, satirical songs, his answer was because when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Prize for Peace, satire lost its meaning. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been going downhill ever since, rapidly recently. Um, so let me pick up with Laura and, and Lauren and bring you guys all into this discussion. Um, you know, it was just... I don't know, 10 days ago, that the um, uh, Mueller team uh, uh, arranged the uh, indictment of 12 members of Russian um, GRU, military intelligence, for their role in um, trying to interfere with the U.S. elections. It was a very detailed indictment, and it mentioned the names of the people and their military units, um, and it 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 was accompanied by a statement on the same day, ten days ago. All time seems to lose all meaning these days, but very recently, when d the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, said, um, as far as the threats against our infrastructure the red lights are flashing much as they were before 9-11. Um, Meanwhile, at the same time, the Congress of the United States um, eliminated special funding for election security. Uh, the three top officials associated with cyber departed 
of the FBI and the head of cyber command and the NS, the head of the NSA agreed to launch some coordination um, against potential cyber attacks, um, which seems like a good idea. But they specifically said they were doing it in the absence of direction from the White House. So the red lights are flashing and people are leaving and funding is going away. And the White House is not putting its foot on the gas on all of this. And I know, Laura, you've been immersed in this. And I just thought I'd start there and get your reaction to all that. Yeah, you know, um, as a colleague of mine often says, it's as if our house was robbed um, and we've decided that instead of locking the door um, to prevent future robberies, we're just going to not only leave the door unlocked, but basically just leave it open so the crooks know that they're welcome to come back anytime. Um, I mean, in other words, it could not be more clear that these vulnerabilities exist that the threat remains and that our um, institutions are basically hamstrung um, for a number of different reasons in terms of taking efforts to actually close off those vulnerabilities. One of the most frustrating things about it is there are very clear steps that could be taken. There are bipartisan pieces of legislation pending in Congress that would provide not only additional funding for securing our election systems, but additional standards and technical support that would make sure that political advertising online is subject to the same kinds of regulations and transparency requirements that political advertising on other mediums are required to, to do. Um, you know, there are a whole host of different steps that could be taken. Um, and what we seem to be lacking is the political will. And that's really, really troubling when we hear the kinds of very clear warnings we're hearing from the DNI. If I could add one other piece, though, David, maybe to just be a tiny bit optimistic. I, I'm hoping that, you know, maybe a little bit of Corey's tiara of optimism might be rubbing off on me occasionally. Um Rod Rosenstein last week announced a really important policy effort um, from the Department of Justice um, that basically will, uh, going forward, have the, the Justice Department exposing to the American people when they detect foreign interference campaigns. And the policy that he articulated, I think, is one that's really worth folks taking a look at. It's something that's, I think, very, very welcome. Um, I think the proof's going to be in the pudding of, of implementation of that, particularly how far that can get without the kind of real whole of government effort and support we need from the White House. But I'm going to try and uh, go on one optimistic note here that things are happening at different levels to at least try to, if not close that door and lock it, at least try and uh, make it a little harder for folks to get through. So, Corey, you'll break off a little piece of the tiara of optimism and send it over to Laura. Laura. I, I absolutely will indeed. I not only am an enormous admirer of the Alliance for Democracy's good work, I have the pleasure of, of being part of the advisory group for it. I think it's really important the way Laura and her team are identifying are are helping all of us understand the dimensions of this problem and are helping policymakers identify practical things that can be done to diminish our vulnerability. And I share her view about the importance of what Rosenstein announced. That we're in the midst of 
of a revolution as social media and connectedness are are changing our politics. And we got to come to terms with this and figure out how to have vibrant conversations that don't get manipulated um, by foreign adversaries. Okay, well, enough of that optimism. Lauren, <laughs> um, let, me, let me turn to you and let's just pick up in the obvious way that Laura set it up on her metaphor of the house being robbed. Because the house was robbed, everybody agrees who robbed the house. The president of the United States met with that guy for a couple of hours um, the, the, the other day, uh, defended that guy, has repeatedly defended that guy in the days uh, since, and now has invited him into the house. I mean, to take the metaphor a step further, he's, <laughs> he said, hey, you robbed the house. Why don't you come over for dinner? We'll talk. I mean, he's basically uh, taking calligraphy lessons in order to put, have a beautiful invitation to hand him to invite him into the house. It's it's could not be more open. Uh, it, go ahead, David. Well, no, I'm just saying, you know, so much for the optimism. You know, if the president of the United States is will, you know, willingly embracing the dude that oversaw the vast majority of this stuff and continues to oversee it. Um, doesn't that make it a little bit hard for the government to, to, to do what it should be doing? Well, there's been an interesting narrative that I, Laura can probably talk more about and be very curious on her views on that, um, you know, pe you, you see this on Twitter, people saying, well, of course the Russians intervened in our last election, but it doesn't matter, or I don't care, or being thankful that they did, that there is an element of like, that's great that they did so. That this is clearly, to some degree, some kind of information campaign that's being run. Uh, but I, I believe it also has some element of support amongst the Republican Party, certain elements of the Republican Party and Trump supporters. So there's that piece of this that I think is profoundly disturbing, that like not only is Trump welcoming them in, that it's not only that people are not willing to stand up to him, but are actually kind of saying, yeah, it's totally fine and that's happening. But I have one it's, it's not quite optimism. It's maybe more of a question that I'm hoping will lead to optimism that thanks to the work of folks like Laura and the Alliance for Securing Democracy and many others, Americans are much savvier in terms of their consumption of uh, online social media, of advertising and other elements in a way that they were not in the 2016 election. And obviously the tactics of the Russians and others will evolve in the future. But I mean, the, people's favorite insult right now on Twitter is to say that something is fake news and to say that somebody is a troll, which doesn't necessarily mean that like they, they, they are or that they have figured out how the system is working. But there is at least a skepticism to some degree that I, I am hopeful with the tiniest, tiniest shred of hope may have some ability to push back against whatever the Russians have set up for us in 2018 and 2020. Now, R Laura can tell me why I should just be very depressed and not have that hope. Well, I'm okay. gonna go ahead. Go ahead, David. Go ahead. Reclaim your right <laughs> reclaim my dinner. So I guess a couple of things on this. The first is um that I do think on the one hand there is some great greater awareness about this set of problems. Um the other part of it though is when you look at polling on this issue, it is 
incredibly partisan how people view it. And if anything, I think that actually puts us in a bit of a deeper hole. Because to the extent that so much of what the Russian government's um, efforts did was essentially exploit existing divisions and polarization in American society, and it's, by the way, similar to what they do in Europe, where they pick issues where they can sort of drive a wedge, um, you know, the partisan interpretations of this challenge actually means that it's going to be harder in some ways to overcome it. Um, the other thing that is is driving me less in the optimistic um, direction on some of this is that I think we've spent too much of our time um, on these issues talking about sort of what's false content, what's true or not, how to be skeptical of certain information, um, when the reality is a lot of what we're actually talking about is not about sort of false content or not. It's essentially about manipulation of the entire information ecosystem. Um, if you think of sort of information as a domain, um, you're, the, the operations that we see using sophisticated social media technology and, and online platforms is essentially distorting that information space so that narratives that may be, you know, based in some facts, but are a very extreme viewpoint or position that may be held only by a certain small percentage of the population are manipulated so as to seem far, far more prevalent online. Um, we also see this in things like, for instance, um, you know, when you go to something like Google News um, and type in um, something related to, let's say, Novichok. Um, I actually think Google may have fixed this one because um, we we had flagged this to them and, and uh, there was quite the problem with it because when you went and searched for some of these terms, you'd find things like Sputnik articles claiming that NATO was responsible for the poisoning of the scripples in order to justify increased defense spending coming up as your top search results on Google News. So somebody has spent some resources trying to understand how to game algorithms. In fact, it's one of the things we know from Mueller's indictment from earlier this year of the Internet Research Agency. They actually had a whole department that was dedicated to understanding search algorithms and how to game them. So this is a pretty sophisticated problem that really is going to require government actors, the private sector, and civil society all thinking through how to tackle it. Well, let's let's explore how that's, that's going a little bit before we come <laughs> back to the Russians here at the end. Ed, um, I, I know you've given this some thought, vitally important roles here are played by the, the, the sort of mega information platforms like Google, as Laura mentions, and Facebook. And yet, like people, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg are not really acknowledging that as fully as they might uh, or accepting that role. And it would seem to me that it's nearly impossible to achieve the kinds of goals uh, that we all might want to achieve and that Laura has described without the cooperation of these big mega players. And there's nothing compelling them to go along with it right now. No, there's nothing. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think Trump is um, at all sort of catching the, um, the left of the Democratic Party's agenda to regulate them. And, and 
um, or even the antitrust rhetoric we're seeing um, with Facebook and others. And um, that's just as well, because Trump would, would have different motives to, to do so. He has benefited enormously from the manipulation of social media. As you say, Zuckerberg has um, uh, only on very, very few occasions, very grudgingly fessed up um, as to the inadvertent role um, that Facebook might have played, and nobody accepts it. I mean, I, I know employees at Facebook who are sort of spluttering with frustration at the at the lack of acknowledgement um, from from the top at Facebook. Um, the politics of regulating um, these um, these fangs, um, as they're called, um, is getting intertwined with the geopolitics, uh, geopolitical debate about how do we combat China's increasingly effective, unified, non-fragmented um, uh, artificial intelligence goals um, and the growing strength and access without any privacy restrictions to data um, on the scale that China can provide. And, and it's no accident, I think, that, you know, Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, uh, Alphabet Google, um, uh, is talking up the China threat um, a lot. And so, you know, the idea that there's going to be any sense of cross across the aisle um, bipartisan sort of consensus on how to get the big Silicon Valley players um, more aligned with America's um, election security and national security and um, uh, combating fake news, uh, fake news is, is, is pretty improbable at this point. And uh, perhaps if Zuckerberg was uh, somebody with greater self-knowledge and a deeper conscience, you know, you could see it happening autonomously. But the, the steps that Facebook have taken, uh, you know, to push fake news or to push news news down to the bottom of people's feeds uh, are, um, have a lot of unintended consequences, too. So, Corey, one of the responses to all of this, which has become more popular, um, which drives me completely batshit, um, as do many things, but this in particular, is that the uh, a lot of people go, well, sure they meddled, uh, or sure they tried to intervene in the election. We do that all the time. And I was just wondering if you would like to respond to that. Yes, I would like to respond to that. Um, if uh, if you were a parent, <laughs> you wouldn't accept that argument from your children, right? Other kids do it. Um, or uh, so uh, the ridiculousness of saying it's okay for others to meddle in our elections because we meddle in other people's elections. That, that's a terrible kind of dead end. If you believe the United States shouldn't be interfering in other people's elections, by which you mean involved in keeping opposition newspapers publishing uh, in repressive societies or finding ways for political dissidents to have voices, if you believe the United States shouldn't do that, that's great. Get involved in American foreign policy and become an activist to prevent that. But do not allow other countries to meddle in American um, elections. That 
that's a crazy conclusion to come to. If you don't think the U.S. should be involved in other people's in trying to promote our values around the world, that's a totally legitimate and fair enough attitude. Um, campaign against it, but do not encourage the corruption of American elections and and our free society by saying it's okay for other countries to clandestinely try and produce different outcomes than the American electorate would produce. Lauren, if your child who um, likes dinosaur puzzles came home and said that they hacked the U.S. elections because the other kids were doing it, how would you respond? <laughs> well, I mean, he's three. So first we'd be like, you, you should be out making me a lot more money than you are right now. Um, <laughs> but then after that, I mean, this is a tough question to talk about to people who have not, who you have not served in a government, have served in democratic causes, because everybody has a slightly different view on it that is not quite accurate. But my view on it is that we and Russia are never going to see eye to eye on what we view as interference and what they view as interference. They view as interference, what Corey is talking about, you know, a funding election, uh, fund, funding opposition newspapers, funding um, free press, uh, supporting civil society, whereas we view it as like, you know, actually hacking our election in some form. And so I don't think we should actually, for one, we should not accept their grounds and should never play by their rules. And two, I'm actually really worried about whether or not the president of the United States tried to come to some kind of non-interference agreement with Putin when he met with him, because Putin has tried to do this to us before. And that would mean stepping back from any number of things that we do, both in Russia and around Russia, in that are, are to our national security interests, whether it be support for uh, you know, de democracy, for the education, for civil society, for free press. A lot of these groups have already been kicked out of Russia. To the, so to the extent that this uh, administration is already, sorry, is uh, stepping back those further, they're making a huge mistake and agreeing with Russia's definition of the problem in a way that doesn't support U.S. interests. So, Laura, as you know, the listeners of Deep State Radio are the most sophisticated listeners in the world. Of course. Uh, as we regularly point out. And mm -hmm. they know, because we've discussed this before, mm -hmm. that the subject of NSC-1, the very mm -hmm. first document produced by the National Security Council, was about interference in a democratic election, in this case, in Italy, uh, in the years after World War II, in 1948, I think, um, uh, in an effort to keep the Communist Party out of power or communist sympathizers out of power in Italy. And we did a lot of things that were not just, you know, radio-free Europe. You know, they were, um, we deposed people, we killed people, we, um, we intervened hard. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the questions is how do we, how do, how do you balance that out? But, but, but I guess the other one and the way I react to it is, you know, countries do all sorts of things and some countries do things in the general interest of the good and some countries do things in the general interest of the bad and values matter. And sometimes it's not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. 
So I think that that's right. But I also think that, um, you know, the Cold War ended and uh, at least for the United States Um, and for Vladimir Putin, um, you know, he may live in a slightly different reality where uh, certain elements of, of that world are one that he still lives in or would like to recreate. But you know, there are certainly things um, that America has done in its past um, that I think we have stopped doing because we believe um, either they were not the things we should be doing um, or because, um, frankly, in some cases, we were really bad at them um, and uh, they're not particularly effective ways of advancing U.S. national security interests. I think if we were to talk about what we, the United States, does today uh, that is frequently or occasionally conflated with what uh, the Russian government does, um, and oh, by the way, what the Chinese um, government and others are increasingly doing, I think we're really talking about apples and oranges. I mean, the way I see it is the things that the United States does um, in order to advance democracy are precisely that. They are about advancing democracy. They're not about particular candidates or parties or figures or issues. They're about the institutions. They're about the fundamental pillars of a society that allow for the um, robust dialogue um, for the free exercise of people's rights, for the ability to choose their leadership, but not to choose their leadership for them. And I think, you know, what we see from from the Russian government and and others um, is an effort to weaken and undermine those very institutions, um, to deny people that choice and those rights, to deny people that ability to engage freely in dialogue. Um, and to share their views in a robust and vibrant manner, as Corey said. And so, you know, I think that in many ways, I see these two things as very polar opposites. Um, and, you know, I think as as Lauren alluded to, this can sometimes be a difficult conversation to have with people who haven't sat in, you know, for instance, the the closet that Lauren and I shared together um, for for over a year in the in the West Wing of the White House at the National Security Council. There's this illusion, I think, sometimes that the United States and its all-powerfulness is engaging in all kinds of things all over the world. Um, and, and the reality is, I think that that is much more about a Hollywood movie screen than it is about the reality of what the United States actually does in the year 2018. Okay. Um and by the way, when you refer to you and Lauren being in the closet at the White House. I know it sounds really. Yeah. <laughs> you, you actually mean that you had a very small office, correct? Yeah, it's an incredibly closet. small office. It was it called was a closet. Called a closet. Yeah, it used to actually be a closet at one point. But yes. Yeah. You've ever heard was it the deputy national security advisor's office also once a closet? Yes. Yes, it was. Ours was even smaller. There's an epic story about, I can't remember which deputy national security advisor it was, that actually moved the wall uh, in order to um, basically take more space for that office and uh, give less space to the shared staff uh, office um, that is on the other side of that wall. It's plausible. The people who've never been in the West Wing in these offices would be surprised at just how small they really are. (laughs) Um, 
uh, because they're really kind of something. Anyway, I want to go around the group now as we wrap up, and I want to come back to an issue that we talked about before um, uh, in the context of, of events that have elapsed since then. And that is, you know, a week or, uh, or so ago, it became kind of interesting to discuss the issue of whether the president was uh, traitor, treasonous, uh, guilty of treason, what the legal ramifications, the legal definitions were, uh, and so forth. Uh, and we talked about this a bit on, on, on the podcast. Um, and since then, we've seen other behavior by the president, including inviting Putin there, uh, backing off of his backing off. You know, last week was called Walk Back Week because the president kept walking back his, you know, arguments that, for example, uh, that he didn't believe the intelligence community, and then he did, and then he didn't, and then it was a hoax, and then the hoax only meant the collusion part and so forth. But but he continued to do all the things that had led to this discussion. Embrace Putin, uh, deny the intelligence community, uh, seemingly put the interests of the United States second, uh, invite other behavior, uh, and not actually take the kind of action that the attacks would warrant. Um, and everybody's had a chance to think about this a little bit more. And I'm going to go to Ed first, and then I'm going to go to each of you. Because Ed, you and I had a bit of an exchange on this issue. Uh, and I thought it was important to air your perspective on this and then get everybody else's take on not just whether the president's a traitor or not, but what it means for us to even be having this conversation. Well, this this is obviously an unprecedented uh, conversation to be having um, about any sitting president, at least since Nixon. Um, the you know question, the legal definition of whether Trump is a traitor and committing treason. You know, I will leave to, uh, leave to constitutional scholars. The politics of I think of, of I think getting caught up in calling treason now when Mueller has a lot more work to do, particularly people like John Brennan tweeting that out. Um, we, we talked earlier about the deep state and how Trump um, and his echo chamber um, characterize Washington as basically a bunch of unelected mandarins attempting to thwart the democratic will. And I think, you know, although uh, Brennan's probably almost certainly right that Trump is, that there's something deep and nefarious about the Putin-Trump relationship that goes way beyond Trump's insecurities about having lost the popular vote, just just uh, winning the Electoral College, and and way beyond even his sort of general predisposition to flatter and um, uh, please strongmen whom he envies, such as Putin. I think it goes way deeper than that, and Brennan was probably on the mark. I think tactically it's actually quite unwise for um, for the word treason to be used so frequently now, um, and particularly by people who were themselves sort of heads of really important parts of the deep state, such as the CIA. We, ne we need to give them as much breathing space as possible, and Mueller, to do their job and make their determinations um, when they're ready to do so. Uh, but broadly, you know, speaking, we're, 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 you know, angels dancing on the head of a pin. I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with you about Trump's extraordinary um, accession to Putin's agenda. Corey? So 
I agree with Ed's judgment that as the president and his supporters become more histronic, we should draw strength from becoming less so. Uh, and, and so with a calm, cool calculation uh, should make judgments about how to uphold the rule of law and the constitution in this country. Um, and, and I also have the sense that uh, for me, it is at the moment irrelevant whether the president is a Russian agent, whether the president is being ruthlessly blackmailed by an enemy government, whether he is so personally corrupt that he's willing to do damage to America's national security for his own personal, legal, or business purposes, or whether he's just so foolish he has no idea what he's doing because the practical consequences are the same, right? I think it, this is a problem political scientists would call overdetermined. Any one of those explanations could produce this outcome, which is the president advancing Vladimir Putin's national security agenda at the expense of the United States of America and its allies. Right. So, Lauren, that's effectively the same thing, right? Regardless of what we're calling it. The problem to me with labeling with labeling it treason is less the definitional matter and more the so what, um, because clearly we, we have a neither, a, there, there are no other institutions other than the deep state that we've talked about that are really checking the president in any way. I mean, you saw Jeff Flake and others do their, you know, their very bold tweets and statements to an empty, uh, Senate hall and not do much else to be able to hold up the president, either hold up the president's agenda or censure him in any way. So we we can say both, both we and members of Congress and prominent former administration officials can stand up and say treason, but all it is is a, is a, you know, a talking point until there's some lever to be able to move the president in one way or the other. And the, the levers that we have left are Mueller, and we don't know what directions that's going to go. And one would hope you would have the lever of Congress, but they seem to have forgotten how to do basically any part of their job. Uh, and I wonder if the energy placed on defining what, what treason is, what isn't, what might be better placed on reminding folks like Flake, Cork, and others, particularly those who are retiring, of the very clear mechanisms they have to put greater oversight on, to hold up, to pause President Trump's agenda across a number of fronts uh, in ways that would be politically useful for them as well. Right. And Laura, what's your take on this current debate? So I, you know, concur with the assessments that have been shared by my esteemed colleagues on this line. Um, and in particular, Corey's point that what matters here is that the president is fundamentally harming U.S. national security interests. And and that is, for me, what really matters. Um, I have the unfortunate um, reality of 
an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that Donald Trump has done or said on foreign policy going back to the mid-1980s as a consequence of my job trying to understand his worldview um, during the campaign when I was working for Hillary Clinton. Is there and medication you can take for that? I really, if you know of some, if any listeners out there know of something, I would really, really love it because it is uh, pretty nightmare-inducing all the time. Um, but what we what we know as a consequence of that is that, um, or at least what I know, <laughs> is that um, Donald Trump has been remarkably consistent on his view um, that alliances are largely a burden, um, not a benefit to the United States, and that he has admired strongmen and has had an odd affection for the former Soviet Union and then Russia. Um for decades. And in fact, um, no analyst has put his thumb uh, more squarely on this than Tom Wright did um, in an article from January of 2016, before any of the primaries had actually even been held, um, where he uh, sort of sketched out an initial assessment of Donald Trump's worldview based on his record at that point. And what we've seen the president essentially do since being inaugurated is remarkably consistent with what we see as his record. And to me, that's even scarier when we realize that essentially I do not believe this is uh, a set of views that can be changed or manipulated um, by, you know, manipulated by American officials around him, essentially. I think that this is what Donald Trump believes. This is what he's believed for decades. I believe it's fundamentally at odds with America's national security interests. Um, but I believe that increasingly as we go forward, he's going to try to execute on those views. Well, why didn't somebody say that during the election? For Gee, I, you know, I seem to recall some people who did. Yes, only. I, I seem to recall some people who did, and maybe there were other sexier topics that um, other people wanted to be talking about instead. Um, wait, wait, let me guess. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. I'm just twitch over here, David. Don't do it to me. <laughs> When people say the word email, do you get like a twitch? Or I twitch a lot. I twitch, especially when it's preceded by but her. <laughs> that it's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> a lot of twitchy. A lot of twitchy. Wow. wow. Um, yeah. No, there's there's some great video clips um, from debates. Uh, there's some great lines from speeches, several. Um that really, and there we did some, there were some video explainer. There were all kinds of warning signs. They were all there. They were all well, there. Yeah. There was an ad he put in the New York Times in like the 80s that very clearly laid this out. This is not a mystery. 1988 ad, I think, right? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, well, there you have it, folks. Another great episode, <laughs> uplifting episode of Deep State Radio in which you've learned you could call the president a traitor, or maybe you wouldn't. He's he's done the same thing as he would have if he were one. And you've also learned that Lauren's son, age three, should be making more money for the family uh, than he has been thus far. It was such a good line, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, true. And that all of us should pray for Laura, who has a lot of scars. And... <laughs> Hope that she finds recovery and peace at some point um, in the not-too-distant future. 
oh, and there's that other stuff about Russia and it's continuing to attack us and Trump um, coming up with nice hand-lettered invitations for Putin to come visit us during the election, by the way, which is really kind of a nice touch, right? He hacks the 2016 election, gets the outcome he wants, and so when the 2018 election rolls around, not only do we not put up the defenses that we need, but we give Putin a hero's welcome at the time of the election um, and embrace him in the White House. Which, Fire uh, the showrunner. Yeah, I am really. Optically, <laughs> wow, that's a twist no one saw coming. Um, but that's Deep State Radio for you for this week. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Laura. Hope you guys will come back soon. Thank you, Corey. Avoid bears. That's another problem <laughs> in Colorado. Um, and Ed, be nice to the contractors, no matter how badly they treat you. If you yell at them, they will destroy your life. I'm trying to be a paragon of courtesy. Yeah. Thank you, <laughs> Contractors have hugely disproportionate power. And thank you to all of you Deep State Radio nerds. We've got some very, very exciting information about the future of Deep State Radio that you'll hear in the next couple of weeks. So you got to tune in. It's the summer. I know it's a slow season, but we've got some very cool stuff going. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you just one little bit of a hint. Uh, we've just been very pleased to hire um, uh, at, here at the company that produces the Deep State Radio, a guy named Chris Cottonwar, who was the chief operating officer and chief revenue officer of the FP Group, which publishes Foreign Policy Magazine, where we worked together for many years. And prior to that, he was the circulation director of the FT, where his job was to make sure that as many people in the U.S. saw Ed Luce's work as possible. Um, and he is now <laughs> joining the Deep State Radio team uh, to help oversee this expansion of what we're doing. So tune in. Cool stuff coming. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we'll uh, have you join us again next week. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>